As Frank Carson's trial approached its end, his secretary would find him standing on the back porch of his office, drinking a soda and soaking in the sunlight. He had never forgotten how chilly it had been during his 16 months in jail. Now it was as if he could never get warm enough, as if he'd never really left the cell. He was just like permanently frozen. <laughs> this is Felicia Walden, who had worked for him throughout the trial. And he would just stand out there. And then finally I went out there and asked him, like, what are you doing? And he was like, oh, it's just nice and warm out here. And, you know, I don't know when or if, you know, there will become a time where I won't be able to do this anymore, to stand out in the sun. And so I'm just enjoying it while I can, if things go left. Bobby Atwal, one of Carson's co-defendants, told me that as verdict day approached, he prepared for the possibility that he'd go to prison. He went to Costco and stockpiled supplies for his family to live off in his absence. Stock toilet paper, paper towel for my daughter's diapers, extra diaper for her, and my you know, wife knows that too, what I'm doing, but she never asked me. The Atwals were Sikhs from the Punjab region of India, and Bobby Atwal told me that as the verdict approached, he turned to his faith and its history for courage. Over and over, he played a Punjabi language video featuring stirring images of Sikhs riding into war on horseback and of choreographed swordplay. It made Bobby Atwal feel connected to a history of warriors who had faced death without flinching. This is another war. Yeah, you gotta go through it. Now it was Friday, June 28, 2019. The Atwal brothers and their lawyers went to a movie in downtown Modesto. The brothers were facing life behind bars if the verdict was guilty. This might be their last day as free men. Then came the call. There was a verdict, but they'd have to wait till the jury was back from lunch to hear it. This is Daljeet Atwal's attorney, Hans Jachtensen. I remember asking D. Daljeet Atwal whether he wanted a beer. And he said, no, I'm good. And I just thought to myself that, you know, you never know. If I were in your shoes, I would have a beer right now. At his law office, Carson was preparing to head to the courthouse with his secretary, Felicia. All of his warlike bluster had been replaced with grim sobriety, and he'd been trying to brace her. I was doing my little, you know, oh, don't worry, we got this, we got this, it's fine, it's fine. And, and Frank was like, hey, kiddo, you know, I'm going to need you to do me a favor if we don't got this. <laughs> You're going to need to hold it together. And I don't want you to make a face. I don't want you to get mad. I don't want you to get upset. You're just going to, you know, keep it together. And I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, do you think, I mean, what do you think? He was like, I know that juries are fickle. They can go either way. She drove Carson to the courthouse in her white Ford Fusion. Carson didn't say much on the way. She thought if she spoke, her voice would crack and he would reproach her. He didn't have to tell me he was a little bit scared. I mean, a lot of bit scared, I'm sure. That's the only time Frank is quiet as if he's, you know, trying not to be overly confident about a verdict. A retired science teacher named Eric Julian had sat through the whole case 
as one of the alternate jurors only to be told he was not needed when it came time to deliberate. If he'd stayed, he later told me, he would have leaned toward conviction. There wasn't a smoking gun, Julian told me, but he was troubled by the stories of Carson making threats to local thieves and that he sometimes packed a gun while patrolling his property. There was also Bobby Atwal's Chevy Silverado, reported stolen and found burned near an orchard. Julian knew auto theft was common in the area, but it was suspicious to him that Bobby Atwal's truck had not been stripped for parts. Julian actually had the same truck and didn't think it could have been stolen without the fob key, which made him think Atwal had had it taken and burned for a reason. And he believed prosecutors had given the reason that he wanted to destroy traces of the victim, Corey Kaufman's corpse. As he approached the courtroom, Bobby Atwal says he found himself next to prosecutor Marlisa Ferreira and investigator Kirk Bunch. And she walked with us. She she tapped with her purse. She said, this, this case is in my purse. This case is in my purse. Purse, yeah. Mr. Farah Samal was like, I got it. They're happy, they're ready, like they're winning. They're done, they got it, what they want. Ferreira tells me this is not true. She insists she said no such thing, that she didn't even have her purse. But there is no dispute about the air of confidence the prosecutor carried into the courtroom that afternoon as she waited to learn whether jurors had bought her case. From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Trials of Frank Carson. I'm Christopher Gofford. This is Episode 8, Verdicts. Before he came into the courtroom, Frank Carson sat in the car outside, praying. Then he walked inside to learn his fate. It had been the longest murder trial in the California criminal court system in nearly 40 years. It had been the second longest murder trial in state history, and perhaps in the nation's history. The clerk initially read Frank Carson's verdict first-degree murder, not guilty, second-degree murder, not guilty. I was sitting behind Frank Carson, so I couldn't see his facial expressions, but I, I saw him leaning down his head. I think he was crying. Frank Carson was not guilty on all counts. Daljeet Atwal, not guilty on all counts. Baljeet Atwal, not guilty on all counts. You're sitting there and you're listening and, you know, guilty, not guilty. You know, the word guilty is in there. I heard it correctly, right? I mean, because it's a lot of emotions, a lot of stress, but I was ecstatic. Corey Kaufman's family was furious. Some were screaming murderer as they charged out of the courtroom. In keeping with her invisibility through the whole case, the district attorney, Birgit Flattiger, did not show up. 
trial prosecutor Marlisa Ferreira, and Kirk Bunch, the DA investigator who had sat beside her through the whole trial, seemed stunned by the jury's decision. It was a tough pill to swallow. Were you surprised? very disappointed. Completely shocked. Completely shocked. We couldn't speak. We're speechless. Judge Barbara Zuniga had ruled there was enough evidence to take it to trial in the first place, and both sides agree she had decided the great majority of motions in the prosecution's favor. She, too, seemed taken aback by the verdicts. It was as if she had presided over a different trial than the jury had seen. I think she was genuinely shocked at the verdict as well. I watched her. Well, we were the only ones left in the courtroom while all the drama was going off. I was looking right at her. Her eyes were as big as they could be. I asked Bobby Atwal about the experience of hearing the verdict acquitting him. It was felt like this big cloud is pouring rain, like pouring water on you. Your body is just, you're flying in the air. You're so light. Your body, your mind, you feel like you're flying. You feel like your step is kind of one feet above the ground, you're walking. Carson left the courthouse with his arm around his mother amid a throng of jubilant supporters. I talked to him a few hours later. You know, I'm not going to kid you. It's the scariest thing in, that you can imagine because I've seen juries um, convict people in a heartbeat, too. I fantasized telling everybody off, including the judge, um, you know, but ever, I was counseled against that, and I thought better of it. What were you going to say? I'm going to tell the judge that she owed all of us uh, defendants an apology, um, and, you know, and maybe she ought to be ashamed of herself. My motto is, um, thank God that juries are smarter than judges. They've shortened my life. Uh, they've caused me untold millions of dollars and lost business reputation, my health. The people that didn't have the resources that I did, or the friends, or the wherewithal, they, they wouldn't stand a chance. The power of the government, they can take away your family, they can take away your job, they can take away your, your freedom, everything you ever worked for, in the drop of a hat. Carson celebrated with a drink, but he could not afford to take time off. He turned 65 the next day, and he was quickly back to his usual rhythms. Dialysis at 4.30 a.m., three times a week, then to the office or to the courthouse. His lawyer, Percy Martinez, back from the hospital and recovering from his stroke, threw a party in his backyard to celebrate the acquittal. Carson was in no mood to make speeches. He mostly sat quietly while people drank and celebrated. There I spoke to a couple of the jurors. One of them was Carrie Agundez, a 57-year-old Xerox operator. She told me she thought the prosecution was an exercise in epic score settling. We did the right thing. I mean, these people are free because... We did what we were supposed to do, what was right. Because if it wasn't for us, they'd be locked up for life. With her was another juror, a 43-year-old woman who did not want me to use her name. She had developed such a bad impression of the DA investigators that she feared them. 
the jurors agreed that prosecution witness Michael Cooley had been a more plausible suspect in the crime and that investigators had ignored leads that contradicted their theory. I was never able to reach Cooley, but in court he'd vehemently deny that he had killed his friend, and the DA said he was not even a suspect. I mean, they were after one person, Mr. Carson. And the rest was collateral damage? There was no evidence whatsoever. There wasn't. It was a witch hunt after Mr. Carson. No, not... I. To myself, I don't think they had anything on Mr. Carson, and that's why it went the way it did. They should have went after the Cooleys because they were the last people that saw um, Corey. The state witnesses, many of them dope addicts, struck them as unreliable. So did the supposed cell phone expert, Jim Cook, who, as I've mentioned before, would not talk to me. The cell tower guy? It was a joke because he eyeballed him and used a protractor when he could have used what Google Earth. The next day was a Sunday, and I found Carson alone at his office preparing legal motions. He was trying to rebuild his clientele, but he feared his reputation was irreversibly damaged. People are still afraid. People still think that maybe we got off on a technicality. You're still tainted. He and his wife were suing for wrongful prosecution, but he didn't seem optimistic that he would live long enough to see the case reach trial. He needed a new kidney and was on a five to seven year list for a transplant. I have people that, that have offered me kidneys, and I don't know that I could live with it. I don't know. But I am moved by it. He had not been to trial as a lawyer since 2015, the year of his arrest. He wondered how it would feel to be back. Well, I've walked uh, I've walked to hell and back now. I've walked through death. When you when you faced what we faced, I feel like I mean, I say that, but I'll still be nervous. But, but, you know, whenever you've been in trial for your life, I mean, what are they going to do? And so I'm going to try to power through it and uh, act like I'm on top of the world in front of a jury. They're not going to need to know that I've been up since three. I'm going to try to act like Perry Mason and entertain them. So when you walk into court tomorrow, what percentage of the old Frank Carson is going to be there? Enough, hopefully, that it'll still, hopefully, to control the courtroom. I'm hoping. We'll see. I'm, I'm damaged. I'm hopeful that I'll be okay, Chris. I hope that I'll owe it to my client that I'll be all right. I'm I'm scared a little bit. I, I worry about things. I, I, you know, I worry that, do I still have it in me? Scared I, a little bit of what? Huh? Is the judge going to treat me the same? Is the jury going to respond to me the same? Am I going to remember everything to do everything? I'm just absolutely exhausted. I'm just, I'm just, petrified.
After the acquittal, I went to see Carson's stepdaughter, Christina Filippo. She was suing too. We were at her aunt's place in Moreno Valley, east of Los Angeles, hundreds of miles from Stanislaus County. I feel like I'm scared all the time. I'm very careful with my words. She had been arrested on charges she conspired with her mother and Carson to cover up the killing of Corey Kaufman, based in part on text messages indicating she was supposed to watch the property where he allegedly disappeared. The evidence was so thin that even by the weak standard of a preliminary hearing, a judge had thrown out the case. UPS knocked on the door the, here the other day, and my heart just went, you know, into my throat. You know, it just, it, it was pounding, you know, because I'm like, it's like, they're here for me. They're, you know, they've come, they're here for me. They're going to drag me back to Stanislaus County. And... At one point, detectives had flown all the way to Brooklyn to ambush her with questions outside of art class when she was a student there. They had listened to her private calls, and they had enlisted one of her best friends to make a pretext call in hopes of catching her, saying something useful to their case. Christina told me that even here, far from the Central Valley, she felt like she was still being surveilled. Once you've been wiretapped, the self-consciousness stays with you. Sorry, it, it does seem silly and melodramatic to say, but I just don't... I don't see how I could really let anyone close to me ever again. I've seen what can be done with innocuous statements, and though at times I, I felt, you know, I felt any conversation I would have anywhere, you know, I'd have like a paranoia, like, oh my God, I expressed too strongly of an opinion. And then like, I'd go through this spiral of, oh my God, you know, they're going to interpret from that, that, you know, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm angry or violent or something, you know, and, and, and... As an artist, she sometimes felt the urge to express the experience in her work, to put the darkness and the turmoil on canvas. And part of me, you know, I, I feel like I, I should address what, you know, my family's gone through, what I've gone through. But then I'm just, it's like, what fodder would it give them? They put such a sinister light cast on on everything. And like, oh, she, you know, here's the her people that she called in her contacts. And she, she called her mother 387 times in this whatever your period, you know, and I'm like, I'm literally, I am honestly like, like, God, how do I explain, you know, talking to my mom? And then you stand back from it and you're like, because she was my freaking mom, you know? And yeah, I, I will, to this day, if it can be avoided, I will not call my mom or my sister. I, you know, I, I will go to great lengths. You know, I will drive seven hours to avoid calling my mom. In Modesto, Carson was free of the murder charge and working full-time, but not out of jeopardy. The DA's office still insisted on prosecuting him for an unrelated allegation, for an omission on what's called a 700 form, in which candidates disclose financial assets. When he ran for DA in 2014, Carson had not mentioned that his wife was part owner of a walnut orchard, though he'd later amended the form to say so. This was the sort of offense the DA rarely prosecuted, so rare that Flatiger herself could not remember filing another case like it during her 15 years in office. 
except for Robert Woody, who had pleaded no contest to manslaughter. Prosecutors won no convictions connected to the death of Corey Kaufman. Charges were dropped against all three of the highway patrol officers who had been charged, Walter Wells, Eduardo Quintanar, and Scott McFarlane. All three men are suing the Stanislaus County DA. Only one of them, Quintanar, managed to get his job back with the highway patrol. McFarlane got a job as a flight instructor. Walter Wells, who spent more than a year in jail and lost his badge, his house, and his life savings, found a job working security at a bowling alley. In June 2020, Carson went to trial for the first time since his acquittal a year earlier. His client was a young skateboarder who had stabbed another skater to death in a parking lot scuffle. Called to give his closing argument, Carson walked to the podium and stood hunched over a sheaf of yellow papers. He had fought for five years to get back to this spot, even if he was a shadow of the figure who had once dominated the courthouse. His argument was self-defense. He invoked a prosecution witness who, he said, could not be trusted. And so, he told his signature story, much plagiarized by local attorneys. It was the one about the payday candy bar in Monroe, Louisiana, the one that looked edible except for the maggots. It seemed effective. A couple of the jurors were wincing and shaking their heads. When I wanted to eat that payday, I didn't, Carson said. I threw the whole thing out. You don't want that ticklish feeling. The jury voted to convict, but Carson counted it a win. He had gotten the judge to reduce the charge from murder to manslaughter. Felicia Walden, his secretary, saw his health failing, yet he kept wanting to take cases and for less money than other defense attorneys were charging. I used to hide the phone from him <laughs> when I was gone because Frank could not, not take a case. So I forgot to put the phone on silent. So when I got back, someone had called for a 187 case and he took it. And I was about to blow a gasket. And he's like, I'm telling you, you know, um, it's, it's a good case. And he gave me the name. And I looked it up. The client was accused of murder after his wife fell out of their car and he failed to get her to a hospital immediately. Carson and Felicia went into the jail to interview him at length, but Carson's stamina seemed to be flagging and he seemed to be in a hurry to leave the jail. He said, kiddo, I have no business taking any more clients the way I feel right now. Carson's family told me that he was basically living on diet soda, pain pills, and corn dogs. The corn dog sticks littered his cluttered desk. In the last couple of years, there had been many scares. Carson had climbed off his deathbed before. He seemed impossibly tough. But soon after that jail visit, during dialysis, he fell asleep and could not be roused. His heart had stopped. Felicia thought, Frank doesn't die. She found him at the hospital where he was kept alive by machines. I told him that, you know, you can rest in here for a couple days, Frank, but then you gotta, you gotta wake up, okay? Like you, you gotta, you gotta open your eyes and you gotta come back. And I kind of wish I just would have told him, like it's okay if you wanna, if you're tired, and if you wanna go, 
But again, I just, I didn't, I didn't want to say goodbye. Frank Carson died on August 11th, 2020, about 14 months after his acquittal for murder. He was 66. His family sat under a tent in the open air before the casket at a cemetery just outside Modesto, and beyond the tent stood a few dozen mourners. Paying tribute were friends, family, lawyers, and at least a couple of reformed outlaws. His co-defendant, Walter Wells, was there. Wells embodied one of the great ironies of the case. Carson, known as the merciless scourge of local cops, had come to regard the young former highway patrolman as a kind of son during their long mutual ordeal. Carson had even offered to take the fall so Wells could go free. Now Wells stood facing his coffin, legs planted, hands clasped in front of him, as if at the burial of another lawman. The pastor called Carson a friend to the friendless, and Carson's friend and lawyer, Percy Martinez, paid tribute. I want to talk about my hero. This man was one in a generation. Frank could have gotten out of this case early on. They wanted him to take a deal and they would let him out. They would let his family out. They were prepared to make any deal. He could have had the easy way out, but he didn't take it. He decided he was going to fight every inch of the way, and that's what he did. One of the speakers was Micah Disney, the grizzled ex-con who liked to describe himself as Carson's favorite client. Disney stayed until most everyone had drifted off and helped to shovel dirt into the hole. He told me Carson embodied a line from Emiliano Zapata, much quoted, but rarely lived. I've known a lot of guys that I'd rather die on my feet than live on my knees. I don't know if any of them really meant it. Frank really meant it. He did. He died on his feet. I went to Carson's office. There I found Percy Martinez's wife, Mary Martinez. She had been integral to the defense. She was there with Carson's widow, Georgia, trying to clear out the files. She was talking about how little he charged. I'm closing up his office now, and I'm like, are you kidding me, Frank? Do you think this case killed him? I know it killed him. It damn near killed Percy. It damn near killed me. I ruined my life and Frank's. They killed my husband. I just, I don't know. In her lawsuit against Stanislaus County and its DA alleging wrongful prosecution, Georgia DeFilippo claims that Carson's legal ordeal, including his time in jail, fatally wrecked his health. She and Mary Martinez wanted DA Birgit Flanagan to answer for it somehow. I don't want to be brushed off. I wish that the, she could be criminally responsible. She deserves to go to, to prison. And so does Marlisa. And so does Marlisa. They have all the laws. There's nobody that we could have gone to. I think there ought to be like another checks and balances somehow. Or, Accountability. Yeah. Or if, zero. If, if you say, well, wait a minute, <laughs> who do you go to? There's nobody.
Even now, prosecutors in Stanislaus County insist they had the right culprits. They got away with murder. If the case had engendered great soul-searching at the DA's office, it did not show. If the acquittals had kindled any doubts about the soundness of the case, or whether it was ever winnable, or whether maybe they had let Kaufman's killers remain free in their attachment to the Carson theory, Marlisa Ferreira and her boss, Birgit Flatiger, were not about to admit this to me. It's not a question of a whodunit. It was a, the jury didn't convict the people that we had for whatever reason. Of course, they were being sued. If they had developed real doubts, they could not ethically have filed the case to start with. If they were to express such doubts now, the attorneys suing them would certainly seize on it as evidence of a bad faith prosecution and try to crucify them with it. So they were powerfully incentivized at this point not to admit to misgivings. They had discussed what went wrong, what blew the case, Ferreira told me. Was it one of the witnesses? Jury fatigue? Was it the defense's skill in fracturing the narrative of her closing argument with objections? The defense was very um, effective in breaking up the information and creating chaos. This is three years of your life. Three? Right? It was more like five. How do you make sense of that? Is it, is it, <clears throat> is it uh, five wasted years for you? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, no, it's not wasted. You know, we do this because it's the right thing to do. We don't do it to get an outcome, necessarily. We do it because our job is to seek justice. Ferreira and Flatiger sat with me for five straight hours, walking me through their view of the case, and responded by email to follow-up questions. Ferreira reminded me that her office had not operated in a vacuum. Multiple out-of-county judges had signed off on search warrants and wiretaps. Another had signed the arrest warrants. Another had held defendants to answer for trial. The prosecutors told me that both investigators Kirk Bunch and Steve Jacobson had retired from the office, but their departure was not motivated by this case. Ferreira continued to defend her cell phone witness, Jim Cook. Would you use him again, uh, Mr. Cook? I would. I would encourage him to get away from this older way of mapping. because The case had lacked physical evidence. Police had seized many guns and tested them, but none matched the bullet found with Kaufman's remains. And there was not a fiber of clothing or a speck of DNA that showed defendants and victim had even been in contact or occupied the same physical space. There was nothing on the remains traceable to Carson, to the Atwalls, or to the witness who implicated them, Robert Woody. The body was left on top of the ground as opposed to being buried. We believe at, at the time and still today, to this day, that you know Mr. Carson had utilized a number of um, techniques and um, things that he learned about as a defense attorney in his covering up this conduct. So Chris, if you leave a body out in the woods through a year and a half of snow, rain, substantial heat, you're not going to have any evidence on that body. That's why it was left that way. 
it was left for those exact reasons so you wouldn't find any physical evidence i mean in a way that's why it was the perfect crime isn't it and who would know how to do that better than a defense attorney who does these kind of murder cases constantly you want to get rid of a body that is the absolute best way to get rid of a body and he knew it he absolutely knew it is it leaving a body out mm-hmm yeah, because the you put it in the ground, the chances of something being preserved is going to be far greater. DNA degrades or is non-existent. Any other trace evidence, you're not going to find it. The logic presented a no-win scenario for a defendant. The lack of evidence against Carson on Kaufman's skeletal remains had been incorporated frictionlessly into the narrative of Carson's guilt. The absence of evidence could not be exculpatory, but was only further evidence of his bottomless criminal cunning. Heads I win, tails you lose. I'm not shocked at all that he got away with murder, because of anyone that could, he would. He knew exactly what to do, how to act, what to say, um, you know, what to watch for, what to do with the evidence, how to manipulate the people around him to stay uh, on his side. It's bizarre to me, actually, that more people haven't heard of this. Uh, outside of this county, you haven't. No, nobody's heard of it's this. It's okay with me. Yeah. Why is that? <laughs> well, it didn't turn out so well for us. So, uh, obviously, when you don't attain the justice you're seeking, it's not something you really want splattered all over the place. Has it hurt you politically? Have you paid a price? No. She's never lost an election. The government's marathon case included an 18-month preliminary hearing and a 17-month trial at massive but unknown financial toll on taxpayers. Flatiger repeatedly refused to give me a dollar estimate. She insisted, it's not even possible. But by even the roughest math, with salaries and experts, it ran well into the millions. During the last five years of the case, during which it dominated their calendar, Kirk Bunch's salary and benefits added up to nearly a million dollars and Ferreira's just over a million. That doesn't include costs for the many other investigators who played some role. It doesn't include court costs, jail costs, the cost of three Punjabi translators, or the half million dollars the state paid Judge Zuniga for her work. In the end, this enormously expensive, enormously long case largely depended on the word of one man. The government had put more than a hundred witnesses on the stand, but only former handyman Robert Woody actually claimed to see Kaufman's death and linked Carson to the crime. Carson himself had known there was no case without Woody. The prosecution says that this is a that this is a circumstantial evidence case. It absolutely is not. It rises or falls on the testimony of this jackass, Robert Woody. Because he'd bragged about killing Kaufman, Woody had faced a murder charge. Against Woody, prosecutors had wielded both carrot and stick. The carrot was that the charge would be reduced if he implicated others. The stick was that he might get the death penalty if he didn't. And so, he finally told the story that got him the deal. The Atwal brothers had been acting as Carson's lookouts when they caught Kaufman on his property and killed him. When I asked the prosecutors about Woody, Ferreira emphasized that his plea deal hinged on him telling the truth. 
the minute he said something that wasn't truthful and I was able to prove it, he loses his deal. So you think he wants to be prosecuted for murder? Absolutely not. Woody had given many contradictory stories. The fingers and toes he claimed to cut off the corpse, for instance, wound up in different places depending on which interview he was giving. Ferreira had an explanation for this. She said that in his initial account to cops, he had been playing a defiant game, trying to outsmart them. Most of the people we work with have antisocial personality disorder. They have attachment disorder. They're defiant in nature. You're not talking coworkers. No. <laughs> I mean the people in cases, our witnesses, who tend to be other gang members, drug addicts. So yes, he lied, he changed his stories, um, but at the point in time that he testified, all of what he testified to, I believe was the truth. It wasn't coerced. Woody had told his girlfriend he'd yanked the teeth from Kaufman's skull burned the hair and fed the body to pigs. This turned out not to be the condition of the body. He was bragging to her. In the final account, there were no pigs devouring the body. Exactly. But again, when is that taken? So it has partial truths in it, right? He's not under oath. He hasn't sworn to tell the truth. He's high and he's bragging to his girlfriend. How weird that may sound. In a judicial setting, where he swears to tell the truth and he rose his right hand and he got up and told the story in front of that jury and this judge at prelim as well, whether or not these events happened in this way, was that a truthful statement? Absolutely. Just a few minutes earlier, the prosecutor had advanced Robert Woody as a candidate for antisocial personality disorder. Now in service of her argument, she seemed to suggest the same man viewed the ritual of swearing on the Bible as solemn and sacrosanct, binding him to an unbreakable oath. She went on to insist that Woody knew things that only one of the killers could have known, like the location of a bullet hole in the back of Kaufman's shirt and the ultimate location of his skeleton. Is there no plausible way in your mind you could have known those things? No, to know exactly where he was shot, no. To know exactly where they dumped the body in the middle of a national forest, no. I mean, that's impossible. Impossible. But there were explanations for this knowledge that were not just possible, but compellingly plausible. A team of investigators had driven Woody to the general location of the body dump in the deep mountains, and police had planted a series of evidence flags in the ground where the bones had been discovered. How difficult would it have been for Woody to guess? And how easy would it have been for detectives to videotape and photograph the whole trip into the mountains with their star witness to prove that Robert Woody was leading them and not vice versa? Yet they had not done this. How did Woody know that Kaufman had a bullet hole in the back of his shirt? It seems plausible that he learned this from his own court-appointed defense team. They had shared the evidence or discovery material with him. It contained crucial details about the condition of Kaufman's remains. Woody had not concealed from detectives that he was familiar with their reports. 
Did you guys find the fucking skull with the teeth in it, with the jawbone still attacked? Did we? That's where it was in uh, Discovery. Oh, I said that? So you read the Discovery on that? Despite Robert Woody's myriad changing stories, despite the fact that jurors had rejected his account, the DA insisted that when he took the stand, Robert Woody told the truth. So, as we sit here today, you believe that Robert Woody was telling the truth when he took the stand? When he took the stand, absolutely. No doubt in my mind. I'd spent years looking into the case, driven to Stanislaus County many times, interviewed dozens of people. One person I had never spoken to was Robert Woody. He was the only person convicted in Kaufman's death. To avoid a worse fate, he'd pleaded no contest to manslaughter and got a sentence of seven years and four months. I expected he'd be in prison, but I learned he had spent so much time in county jail as the case dragged out that he didn't need to serve state time. He was released in January 2020. I learned that he was still living in his parents' home just down the block in Turlock from the Poppincork. On the day of Carson's funeral, I found somebody to get word to Woody that I would be coming by. It was nearly dusk when I arrived. Robert Woody answered the door and looked at me warily. He was just home from work. He's not a tall man, but thickly built. He wore a big red beard and tan work boots and a t-shirt from the fiber optic cable company he works for. His vivid blue eyes did not waver from mine. I asked him if I could talk to him about his experience and whether I could record it. He said, sure. And within a few minutes, he was telling me that he had made it up. All of it. He said his so-called confession to his girlfriend was invented to impress her based on things he'd heard in the streets. He'd listened to his dad's stories about wild pigs and how they'd eat everything on a body but the hands and feet, and he'd seen something in the movies about it, too. He pointed out that when police found Corey Kaufman's skeleton, it was not in the condition he described. The skull had intact teeth. You talk shit out your ass, it just depends on who it is and your bike to be. Some people jump on that and you're like, okay, this, this could be it. This could be it. But knowingly, that the things that I said are not all actual things to, you know, as detective, as you have as evidence. You have a skull with teeth in it. I mean, shit, you found a body. But did I not say I chopped the body up better thoughts? <laughs> they bit the bait. They jumped on. They jumped on like fools. They jumped on like fools. No, the evidence Gary had about the fucking body that they found, the bones they fucking found in the mountains, right? Compared to the story that I fucking gave, and they still ran with that one. Oh my God, are you serious? He insisted he'd been telling the truth when he said he had nothing to do with Corey Kaufman's death. And everything else beyond that, make believe. Stories they want to hear. After a while, we went inside. 
He took me to his little bedroom in the back of the house, the very room where he'd given the methamphetamine-fueled account to his girlfriend that set so much in motion. I asked him why he told police stories they wanted to hear. I want to get back to my family, Bill. He said he told the story that would get him home fastest to his family. So he had not actually seen the Atwal brothers attack and kill Kaufman on Carson's lot? Make-believe, he told me. Burying Kaufman's body by the pop and cork? Make-believe. Digging the body up and hauling it into the mountains? Make-believe. He said he had studied the cops carefully and figured out what they wanted him to say. They threw out bits of information. He threw them into the story. He said he had a habit of watching people, studying body language. When detectives interviewed him, he looked for what he called feedback. He compared it to being read a story and then getting a test on it. He said he had never actually seen Corey Kaufman alive or dead, but when he insisted on his innocence, the cops just kept telling him he was a liar. I asked him about the day the authorities drove him into the Stanislaus National Forest what he was supposedly proving his involvement in the crime by leading cops to the site where Corey Kaufman's body had been dumped. But he told me he had never been up there before that day. He told me he saw flags in the ground. Police had planted flags to mark where the scattered bones were located. This helped him guess correctly. What he reenacted for me, how easily he had deceived them, and by such obvious methods that it strained belief that authorities would not have known what he was doing. I can't be out too much further than this. I said, yeah, no, right there's about, right there's about it. You sure? Yeah, right there's about it. So you're saying right there. I'll tell you what, Robert, that's the problem about where about we almost found that body, the, the rings. So good, I mean, yeah, so that's good. Of course, you got everything fucking marked off. You got everything beat down. Was that your first time up there? Yes, very first time. So when you were on the stand this time last year, why didn't you just come out and say that? Say what? Say what you just told me now. Why? Here are my shoes, what would you be? A liar. I told the truth in the beginning. I was a liar. I told a lie. I was, a, I was telling the truth. Was there ever a point in, in the middle of all this, Robert, where you uh, you felt bad for all these other people that were uh, that were on trial for their lives? Like Frank Carson, like the Outwall brothers, like Walter Wells. Did you ever feel uh, sympathy for them or compassion for them? Not because they were they were because they were going to go down on uh, on what you called make believe. Well, they didn't give a shit. They were throwing me under the fucking bus too, saying I was fucking a uh, drug addict, motherfucking. I made all this up myself. I I did it all myself, trying to bring them down. Okay, yeah, all right. Brought yourself right into the game. In this, Woody seemed swayed by what police had told him to win his cooperation. That the Atwals were placing the blame on him would turn against him would even try to kill him. The police tactic had succeeded, and he seemed still to believe it. 
Did you ever feel bad for Carson, though? No, I knew the guy. But I mean, if uh, the jury believed what she said on the stand, you would have gone away for life. So I had to live with. We all do things in life, but we have to live. We have to live with things we say in life. We have to live with. With his prison term behind him, with nothing obvious to gain by lying. Woody had returned to what he'd said from the beginning. He had not killed Kaufman and didn't know who had. Which would mean, of course, that the whole case against Frank Carson and his co-defendants, the second longest murder trial in California history, had been built on the lies of a man who had found himself desperately cornered and saw just one escape. Woody had told a story and he seemed to find it almost unbelievable that people in positions of power, custodians of law and order, from cops to DAs to a judge, had given so much weight to one man's dubious word. As if to stress the absurdity of this, Woody began to toy with me. He said that in spite of what he just told me, nobody could really be certain of anything. Nobody knows. I could pull in your leg right now. Why though? For what for what purpose? Exactly. I could be fucking blowing smoke up your ass right now, literally on a recording shit, just in myself with a little humor inside just laughing at you because you are sitting here being a little pawn in my little game. See you don't know. I right? You don't know. Trials of Frank Carson is written and reported by me, your host, Christopher Gofford, for the Los Angeles Times. Our producers are Lori Galaretta and Sabrina Fang. Alex McGinnis is our composer and sound designer. Misha Stanton is our mix engineer. Our editor is Steve Clow. Our executive producers are Ben Adair at Western Sound and Abby Fentress Swanson at the LA Times. Special thanks to Shelby Grad, Julia Turner, and Kimmy Yoshino. If you like what you're hearing, Become a Los Angeles Times subscriber. You'll get special bonus episodes of this podcast. Subscribe now to get an exclusive bonus episode, which is a companion to our eighth episode, Verdicts. With the trial over, my editor Steve Clow and I discuss whether we will ever know who killed Corey Kaufman. We also share previously unreleased tape of Frank Carson and more of my interview with the prosecutors on the case. Subscribe today to listen. Go to latimes.com forward slash exclusive dash podcasts. Thanks.